Well, I must say I'm really excited about Jeff being in that role. Uh, I really do think his uh, giftings and his passions are really going to work well um, in that play in that role in our church. I want to ditto off of Brian about the, some of those uh, service opportunities, you know, especially the bike fix-up. He mentioned, you know, we're going to, if you're a mechanic, we're going to keep you away from the kids. Um, actually, we're going to do something new this year. If you're a mechanic, we are going to make sure you hand off that bike to the kid who, uh, who you fixed it for. And so um, you'll get the uh, joy of getting to see um, them, you know, their appreciation and their gratefulness. Um, and so come on out for that. Sign up at the welcome table um, as for all stuff we do. Well, have you ever had um, this experience where you are talking to someone and you can kind of tell they are only half listening? Um, it's, it's one of those uh, universal kind of uh, experiences. Um, you, you almost know. They're just, they're just not hearing what you're saying. Um, and it's, it's, isn't that annoying? That's annoying, right? Uh, well, you know, sometimes you know, we, we, we actually have something important to say and we want them to hear it. I mean, it's like, listen this time. Um, well, you know, we wish people would listen to us, but do you ever wish you could just fix something in someone's mind um, so clearly so that they would never forget it, right? You know, never forget it. You know, I, I, I think it would be great if we could do this with our family members, right? You know, fix something in their minds so they would just never, you know, just would never go away. They would be totally listening, engaged. It would sink deep. Um, you know, things, things like always put the game away, before you play with the next game. <laughs> Always put that one away first, then play with the next one. Always put the kitchen towel back where it belongs. If it needs to go in the laundry, get a new one out and put it in its place, right? These are the things we, we do. Turn off the light after you leave the room. When you, lo- when you use the last of something, put it on the grocery list. Just fix it in their minds. <laughs> Always brush your teeth. With toothpaste. <laughs> it is never acceptable to brush without toothpaste. These are some of the things that uh, we, we at our household wish we could fix in people's minds. Um, sometimes you just wish you could speak so that they would hear you and they would never forget. Well, well, one day you will get that opportunity. Unfortunately, it is, it's not the sort of opportunity that um, you wish for. Most of us will not die a sudden death, but we will uh, know that it's getting pretty close. And the people who love us, they will gather around us and, uh, and they'll give us a chance to speak. And it will be those last words for them before we leave the earth that will be kind of fused in, uh, in their minds. Not everybody gets this, but a lot of you will. You'll get a clear speech with the undivided attention of everyone in the room. And you'll be saying things that they'll never forget. What will you say? What would you wish to pass on to them? It won't be any of the uh, trivial things that I've just mentioned, right? You'll want to pass on something of substance. Something that if if they take it with them... Um, and, and apply it to their lives, it will change their life. Today we're going to be looking at the last words of King David before his death. And this will be our last message in the series on the Samuels. And as you've seen in the book of Samuel, uh, in, the, in the two books of Samuel, that Second Samuel is really all about David. It is David's life and his rise to uh, power, start to finish, 
Second Samuel is about David. And David is revered by many today, and he's revered in the pages of the Bible as someone who just really was an incredible person of history. Just really a great man of history, someone to admire. And God refers to David as a man after his own, his own heart. God reveres David. He acknowledges that David walked in his ways and that he followed God's commandments. And God sticks with David. You see this in the pages of the Bible. You know, there's a lot of kings who are anointed king over Israel, but God sticks with David um, through his life. And that's not true of, of everyone. David is definitely honored by God and blessed by God. And so we revere David as uh, great. And the various Bible, um, Bible, the writers of the Bible, they revere him as great as well. As we've talked about David, you have probably wondered, what made David so great? What was it about David's, you know, character? What, what was it about him that made him one of those people that we just really revere? And more importantly, how did he become one of those people who God really liked and who God really blessed? What were the key character characteristics? We could look through all of First and Second Samuel for these characteristics, but I, I think here in his last words on his deathbed, I think we can find all the things that really made David a great man um, in the eyes of God and the eyes of the people. So I want you to join me. We're going to take a look um, at what David said to his bedside companions um, before he died. Let's give, let's give him his, our, our undivided attention um, and hear what he has to say. These are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, speaks. David, the man who was raised up so high. David, the man anointed by the God of Jacob. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His words are upon my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, The one who rules righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is like the light of morning at sunrise, like a morning without clouds, like the gleaming of the sun on new grass after rain. Is it not my family God has chosen? Yes, he has made an everlasting covenant with me. His agreement is arranged and guaranteed in every detail. He will ensure my safety and success. But the godless are like thorns to be thrown away, for they tear the hand that touches them. One must use iron tools to chop them down. They will be totally consumed by fire. So today, we are going to unpack David's words, these carefully chosen words, a true reflection of who he was and what he believed to the core. And what we're going to see is we're going to see some of those character, character traits that really made him great. And I think these, these character traits, these words that we're going to see here, uh, provide us with a recipe for greatness. The first part of this recipe is this. If you want to be great like David was great... You need to be someone who listens to God. You need to be someone who listens to God. In verse 2, David says this, The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His words are upon my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me. And then he goes on to share something that God said to him. So David was one who was listening to God. Now you may be looking at this verse and thinking, you know, well... That's not really something I can control, is it? You know, I can't, I can't, I can't control when, when God speaks to me. David, God spoke to David a lot. 
I can't, conf- I can't force God to speak to me. And that is true. We cannot force God to speak to us. But here's something I want to invite you to consider this morning. Are you listening for him? Are you listening for him? David heard from God a lot in life. God spoke to him often. But this was not because God simply had a lot to say to David. It was because David was one of the ones who was listening you know, you know, Brian gave a sermon um, recently um, about learning to hear God's voice. And uh, afterward, he invited Adele to come up to uh, share about, you know, how to hear God's voice. And, and one of the things she mentioned, I think Brian mentioned this in his sermon as well, was that, you know, God is always speaking. And I thought it was very interesting, Adele. I thought it, I thought it was very true that God is always speaking. He's always ready to speak. Um, but we aren't always listening. We aren't always ready to listen. And I, I, think it's, I think it's a really important concept because I think it's an inherent part of God's nature that he is um, always available, always ready to speak to those who are listening, for those who have hearts who are ready to listen. Well, David was one who listened to God. His heart was ready to listen to God. He took time to listen to God. Well, one day, one, one big way that the Bible... Um, one, one, one big way that we worship and, uh, and listen and hear from God and meet with God is through the Bible. And so I, I want to encourage you to think about this. If we want to hear from God, we should first listen, li- listen to the things that he said to people long ago. And then, um, as we listen to the things that he said to p- other people long ago, we will see that a lot of those things he is still saying to us today. When you read the Bible and you listen for God to speak to you through it, that is when you grow as a Christian. That's when you grow. You know, in our high school small group right now, we are committed to reading the Bible for 30 minutes a week. And uh, we're, re- we're really loving this commitment. And uh, it's actually been a really good thing. And, you know, 30 minutes a week is less than five minutes per day. Think about that. 30 minutes a week, five minutes a day. Everyone, I think everyone can get that into their schedule, no matter how busy you are. Five minutes per day. Um, And I tell you, we've got some teens who are reading their Bibles um, according to this commitment, and they are really growing. And it's been uh, really cool to see. And I, and I, w- I want to say, you know, if you're not reading your Bible or meeting with God, I want to be honest with you. You are, you are growing slowly, if at all. Because that is an important way that we grow. And, uh, you know, these teens who are reading their Bibles regularly, they're growing, and they're growing fast. And I will tell you, if, if, uh, if you're not doing any of this, uh, before long, um, those teens are going to surpass you spiritually because um, they're growing. And, and, and that's how you—it's a, it's a key imp- component of growth. Scriptures, scriptures, scriptures. You have to be listening to God. In this passage, we have David's last words. But in 1 Kings, let's take a look. He says something to Solomon. These are his last words to Solomon in 1 Kings. Let's take a look at those. David says to his son, I'm I'm going where everyone on earth must someday go. Take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, commands, regulations, and laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do and wherever you go. The law of Moses. The law of Moses was what they called their Bible back then. Um, So when they wanted to encourage each other to read their Bibles, they would say, hey, you know, when was the last time you read your law of Moses? Or they'd say, hey, you know, uh, have you gotten into the law today? 
And they, 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 would, they, they would refer to it as the law of Moses. So when, when David is saying this to his son Solomon, he's saying, you've got to observe these commandments that are written in the law of Moses. And of course, in order to observe them, what do you have to do first? You've got to read them, or at least listen to them on audiobook. You know, I, I mean, and, and that Solomon maybe would have had somebody read it to him. Um, but you know, you can have somebody read it to you. Did you know that? Audiobook. You know, that is, it is a great, audiobook is a great way to get the Bible into your diet. You can pop it into the car when you're on your way, on your way to work. Great way to get the scripture into your diet. David had a very interesting life. He navigated treachery, home, homelessness, the governing of a nation, leadership in battle, all sorts of difficulty. And all through them, he leaned on God by listening for what God had to say for that situation. If you want to be great like David was great, you need to be someone who listens to God. The second part of our recipe is that you must have a longing for righteousness. You must have a longing for righteousness. Here's what God told David and what David wants to tell us. Verse 3. The one, so he says, the rock of Israel spoke to me. The one who rules righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is like the light of morning at sunrise, like a morning without clouds, like the gleaming of the sun on new grass after rain. The one who rules righteously. If you want to be great like David was great, you need to have a longing for righteousness. David was one who valued righteousness. Now, you know, I, I've realized that righteousness is not really a word we use, is it? We don't use the word righteousness. We don't say so-and-so is a really righteous person. We don't say, you know, if I could just do one thing in my life, you know, I, I really would like to be more righteous. Uh, we don't say that. No, we, we use the word good. But the word good doesn't do justice to what God means when he uses the word righteousness, or what the, what the Bible means when it uses the word righteousness. Because we use righteousness very rarely, if at all, you might have a confused meaning of what righteousness actually is. If righteousness for you means always following the rules and always meeting the expectations of other people, um, you've got the wrong picture. That is not righteousness. If for you it means always doing the proper thing, your, your, your understanding of righteousness has probably given you a de desire to kind of steer clear of it, right? We don't want to be pinned down, always having to do the proper thing. Well, that's not righteousness. So let's clarify what God really means by this word righteousness. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedek. I, I probably haven't said it right because I don't speak Hebrew, but zedek, that's, that's the word for righteousness. And it appears more than 500 times in the Old Testament. It is a very, very common word. And here's the interesting thing about zedek. Zedek is interpreted two ways in the Old Testament, one of two ways. Um, there's probably a few other ways, but it's, it's primarily interpreted two ways. Righteousness, our, our understanding of righteousness, and justice. Justice. So these two concepts, justice and righteousness, are not two separate ideas. They are one idea in Hebrew thought. One unified concept in the minds of those who spoke Hebrew. So in the minds of the Old Testament writers, when you are pursuing righteousness, and you're pursuing, um, you're pursuing you know, righteousness, you are pursuing justice. When you are pursuing justice, you are pursuing righteousness. They're the same thing. 
So when you are pursuing these things, when God is telling you to pursue righteousness, he's saying um, that you are to pursue the way things are supposed to be. Rightness. That's the concept. God created this world. He knows the way things are supposed to be. And when they are not that way, they are corrupted. And he longs for righteousness and justice. He longs for them to be the way he intended them to be. So when you hear about parents who live their lives surrendered to drugs while their kids are in and out of foster care, does your heart break for them? Do you say internally, this is not right? This is a longing for righteousness. When you hear about someone who's cheated their way to the top of the class or cheated their way to the top of the, uh, the ladder at work or cheated their way to the top of anything, do you, do you say, this is not right? Do you, do, you, do you long for something different? Do you long for justice? When you hear about someone who is being mistreated and made fun of and shunned, do you long for righteousness? When you hear about poverty in third world countries and living conditions, do you say, this is not right? Do you long for something different? Do you long for righteousness and justice? Of course, a longing for righteousness and justice is not just a longing for things outside of ourselves, is it? Pursuing and longing for righteousness that means, means that we long for it in our own lives, too. When you look, up, look at a messed up part of your life, do you long for a change? Do you long for it to be different, for things to be healthy? When you, look, when you see sin in your own life, do you say, ooh, that is ugly? Or, or do you say, eh, it's not that big a deal? You see, God thinks it's a big deal, and that's why he keeps talking about this thing, righteousness. He talks about it over and over. You know, Jesus was a really loving person. We like to look at Jesus and say, oh, he's a loving person. He's very, very gracious, very forgiving of our sins. Um, but, but, but do you remember what Jesus would do after he healed someone or after he forgave someone? Remember what he would tell them? He'd say, go and sin no more. God is really forgiving. He is very forgiving. But he cares a lot more about righteousness than, uh, than we do. David was a guy who cared about righteousness, and his care and concern for righteousness flowed out of a love for God. He loved God, and so his love for God caused him to have a longing for righteousness. God cared about righteousness, so David cared about righteousness. You know, David often stopped himself from doing what would be a sensible thing because he felt like this is not, this is, this is not pleasing to God. He, he executed people who, who, were, who were murderers and, and the unjust. He executed them because he had a longing for justice and righteousness. He cared about these things because God cared about them. Now, let's say you are uh, married, and um, you have, you're married to someone who really cares about having a clean house. And, you know, dirty dishes in the sink are not okay. Crumbs need to be vacuumed up right away. Um, you know, they, they want the closets, the kitchen, and the bookshelves to be all organized. No loose items. They want the floors swept, you know, everything. Uh, so this is their thing. They really want a clean house. Now, if you are married to them and you love them and you care about them, you're also going to care that the house is clean. You're going to care about clean, keeping the house clean because you care about them. Let's say you're married to someone who really cares about the unjust treatment of animals. 
You know, they, they, uh, they go to the protests, they uh, have the bumper stickers, they eat free range, all that stuff. You know, they, 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 do, they do all that. That's, that's their issue, the unjust treatment of animals. Now, if you're married to them and you love them and you care about them, this is going to be an issue you pay attention to because you care about them. Well, God's issue is righteousness. That's his issue. He really cares about this a lot. It's what he longs for. It's what he works for. He came to die in our place so that righteousness could be a, be a reality in our own lives. This is his issue. He longs for righteousness and justice in your life and the lives of the people around you. And so, if you don't really care about righteousness very much, then let's be honest. You just don't really care about God very much. I hate to say it so bluntly, but I, I just really think it's a great metric for our, our love and care for God. And, and really, it's a, it's a metric you can apply to a lot of relationships, right? Do you care about what He cares about? Now, of course, um, you know, our care and concern for God, our love for God, is not a static thing. So if you're looking at your life right now and you realize, you know, righteousness hasn't been a real big issue on my radar, you know, th- th- that can change. You just need to have a change in your heart. You need to decide if God is really going to be important to you, if you're really going to start caring about him. And uh, real love, you know, is a lot more like a decision, a lot less like a feeling. You know, you can decide today to start caring about God more and to start caring about what he cares about. It's a decision. Remember, righteousness is not about doing the proper thing. It's really about starting to care about about righteousness the way David cared about righteousness. You're going to start to long for the world to look differently, the way God wants it to look. When you look at those drug-addicted parents, you're going to wish for them to go to rehab and be restored and, and get to return and parent their family in a healthy relationship. That's what you'll long for, because that is what God's, God's longing for. And you're going to care about seeing righteousness realized not just in other people's lives, but also in your own life. Every part of it. This is what you're going to long for. And what does Jesus tell us? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Caring about righteousness was a big part of what made David great in God's eyes. The third part of our recipe for greatness is that you need to be someone who acknowledges God's authority. You need to be someone who acknowledges God's authority. So David said this um, in verse 3, The God of Israel spoke to me, the rock of Israel said to me, the one who rules righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is like the light of morning at sunrise, like the morning without clouds. So David was king for 40 years. 40 years being king over the nation of Israel, a long time. And here he shares one of his secrets to his successful governance of this nation. He says it's important to rule righteously, to care about righteousness, and it's important to rule in the fear of God. It's important to acknowledge that you have an authority figure over you. You see, authority becomes dangerous when you don't have an authority figure over you. You know, if, if, you, if you are in a place of authority, you need an authority over you. If you don't have an authority over you, um, you can essentially do what you want without repercussions, right? I mean, because you're, you're the only one doling out punishments, and you're not going to punish yourself. And so you, you, you have, if you have no authority over you, you have um, free reign to kind of do whatever you want. 
And there's a great risk for corruption when we're in a place of authority and we don't have authority over us. And I think this is a biblical principle that finds its easiest application and probably most important application uh, for parents. As a parent, you are in a place of authority over your kids. You tell them what they're supposed to do. If they don't, if they don't do it, you punish them, right? And, you know, when, when you were a kid, you were supervised by your parents. And you wish for that day when, when you weren't supervised by them anymore. And you could kind of set the rules for the house, and you could, you could do what you wanted. So your, your kids are under your authority, but who's your authority? Who's, who's, your, who's in authority over you? All authority, authority figures need an authority figure over them. They need accountability. And it's not just authority figures. Really, it's just everybody. Everybody needs authority in their lives. And first and foremost, that authority needs to be God. When you have an authority person over you, they will hold you responsible for um, the responsibilities that they've given you. And so with parenting or supervising people at work or, you know, any other area of life, you are responsible for how someone else is doing. And you need to recognize that you were put in that responsibility, in that place, in that role by God, and that he holds you accountable for how they are doing. Husbands, you are accountable for how your wives are doing. Wives, you are accountable for how your husbands are doing. Parents, God has entrusted you with children that, that he really cares a lot about. How are you doing caring for God's kids? You know, I think guys tend to struggle with this issue a little bit more. Um, I think it, can place, it can apply to any place of authority. But I think guys tend to struggle with this a little bit more. And so I want to I speak, uh, you know, frankly, to husbands and fathers. Husbands and fathers. Are you king of your house and no one can tell you when you are wrong? Or do you tremble in fear at the thought of displeasing God and bringing his judgment upon you for the way that you lead your family? Do you tremble in fear at him? Do you rule in the fear of God? Do you rule in the fear of God? Do you tremble at the thought of displeasing him? If you are in charge, you ought to. You ought to. That's what David is telling us. If you're in charge, you ought to. Every once in a while, uh, Abram um, would start making rule, new rules for the house. And so uh, I would, you know, he would start talking to me like he's, he's the boss. And, and so I'd, I'd sit him down and say, Abram, come on, let's sit down. And I said, Abram, are you the boss? And then there's a silence. And uh, I said, I'll tell him, Abram, you have to answer this question. Are you the boss? No. <laughs> Who is the boss of our family? God. <laughs> After God, who is the boss of our family? Mom. <laughs> no, mommy and daddy, mommy and daddy. And then I tell him, don't pretend that you're the boss. And, you know, this, 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 this interaction doesn't really happen that much um, right now. But, it, but there was a, a period in our, in our family's life where this would just happen over and over again. And we would, we would go through it like a script. Um, and, you know, he was being a little bit defiant. Um, but I loved the fact that he listed God as the boss of our family. Um, and I trained him to think that way because I wanted him to know that I have to report to an authority as well. I can't just do whatever I want. I have to report to an authority. 
I'm going to be held accountable. So I, I have four boys now, um, and we've been, we've been doing the family thing for a while. And, uh, you know, I think leading our family has been just one of the greatest challenges of my life and probably will be the greatest challenge of my life um, to do that well. And um, I think this principle of ruling in the fear of God is one of the most important principles for family leadership. Um, it is good to, to, to remember that I can't do whatever I'd like to or whatever I feel like doing um, in regard to my family. I have orders. I have a responsibility, and if I don't follow through on that responsibility, I bring the judgment of God upon myself. And God has called me out on my poor leadership at times. You know, I, I distinctly remember a time when I was um, in prayer, I was realizing that I just was not... Um, in tune with, or taking responsibility for the spiritual leadership, the spiritual leadership of our family. Um, I wasn't monitoring the spiritual condition of members of our family. And, uh, and so now I keep tabs on it. And I, I, I think often, how are they doing? How is this, how is this person doing um, in the relationship with God? And uh, how am I leading them in this relationship? Um, and you know what? I, I do this. I ask Katie if she's been reading her Bible. I ask her. I don't ask her every day. I'm not stupid. <laughs> but, but, uh, but I ask her. Um, I ask her this. Um, God... <laughs> um, God has, and he continues to call me out on various sorts of leadership failures in, my, in, in our family. Each time, it has been a good and healthy thing for me and for our family when God has called me out on things that I'm, I'm just not doing or not doing well or not doing right. It is my prayer for you that that would be the sort of relationship that you have with your boss. You can't do whatever you like. You have a responsibility. Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, brothers and sisters too. You are your brother's keeper. You have a responsibility for how the people near you are doing. You have a responsibility. And you especially have a responsibility for those people who are in your oversight. And here's the nice thing. If you are ruling in the fear of God, you are going to be like a breath of fresh air to the people around you. You're going to be a breath of fresh air. Listen to what David says you'll be like. The one who rules righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is like the light of morning at sunrise. Like a morning without clouds, like the gleaming of the sun on new grass after rain. That's what you'll be like. I love the light of morning at sunrise. The shimmering of the sun on, on, off wet grass, it's a beautiful thing. Like a blue sky, that's what you'll be like to the people around you. If... You are ruling in the fear of God. The fourth ingredient to our recipe is that you must know the source of your significance. You must know the source of your significance. In his last words, David says this, Is not my family, um, is not my family God has chosen? Yes, he has made an everlasting covenant with me. His agreement is arranged and guaranteed in every detail. He will ensure my safety and success. David traces back his significance to God's selection of him, God's choice in him. You know, if you, if you remember, David was a young boy when God chose him. He had not done anything of merit. He had not done anything great. 
God chose him because God had a plan, and David's own love for God made him a perfect person for that plan. David knew that it was God's love for him that ultimately was the source of his significance. It was not his medals of honor or his impressive resume of accomplishments. David was important because God loved him and because God had chosen him. And the same is true for you. Did you know that? You were chosen too. You didn't just come, come to Christ by accident. God sought you out. He arranged the details of your life so that you would uh, have an opportunity and you just merely responded to him. David says, he will ensure my safety and success. Not my hard work will ensure my safety and success. Not, not my figuring this out. Not my uh, protections and safeguards. No, he, God, will ensure my safety and success. David's value doesn't depend on what he can do or what he can accomplish. David's value just depends on God's love for him. And David was so captivated by this love from God that he just couldn't stop singing about it, could he? The book of Psalms is filled with all sorts of songs where David is just singing about how, how great God's love is. Your love endures forever, he sings. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that he loves you? Just as you are. No, no, no need for accomplishments. He, he just loves you no matter what you accomplish. The truth is you have a deep and profound value to God. He loves you and he needs to be the source of your significance. Not these things that we measure ourselves by. Not the mistakes we've made or the attention that we can attract. Those should not be the measurement for our, for our, our value. If you want to be great like David was great, you need to know that the source of your significance is God's love for you. Don't lean on anything else. The fifth ingredient to David's greatness was that he never forgot how God had uniquely made him. Even to his dying day, David identified himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel. Let's take a look at that verse 1. David, the son of Jesse, speaks. David, the man who was raised up so high. David, the man anointed by the God of, Is of Jacob. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. You see, David was made to sing. That was his thing. It was where his greatest gifting was. Uh, where where he, he, was, he was uniquely made for this. He was made to be a songwriter. David was a very successful king. But that's not where his greatest impact was. Think for a second about all of David's accomplishments. He went from being a fugitive to being a king. He, he, he defeated the mighty Goliath as a teenager. He drove the Philistines, the Syrians, the, uh, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, Moabites. They, he drove them all out of Israel. He conquered what was one of the most heavily fortified cities around, Jerusalem. He brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He destroyed idol, idol, idol worship locations. And, uh, and he, he united a divided country. I mean, this guy was great. By, by, by the world standards. His, his accomplishments were impressive. But did you know that none of those things were David's greatest impact? A lot of people think that uh, defeating Goliath was his greatest accomplishment. But if you look at the impact that David has had over, over history, over the course of history, Goli nobody cares about Goliath. Uh, no, 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 it doesn't matter over the course of history that, that Goliath was defeated. David's greatest accomplishment were his songs. For thousands of years, people have been stuck, wanting to meet with God, not knowing how to pray. And they've opened up the book of Psalms, and they've read those Psalms, those prayers, and they've prayed them, and they've been able to meet with God. 
thousands of years. Thousands. Even to this day, all around the world, people are singing worship songs that David wrote as he wrote them. Word for word. We still use those wordings. David's contemporaries were probably most impressed by his uh, military leadership. They never would have realized that his greatest impact would have been his humble, honest, vulnerable songs. They were his greatest impact. They are still impacting us today. In fact, they are impacting you right now. Did you know that? Because if you, t- I don't know if you noticed this, but take a look. Even his dying words were likely a song. If you take a look in your Bibles, it's written in, par- in uh, it's not written in paragraph form, is it? It's written uh, with lines, like a, like a piece of poetry. And the reason is because the, so, there's something in the structure of the sentences that leads the translators to believe that this is a poetic, a song sort of thing. Um, it's not just a paragraph. So David's last words were a song. He, saw, he sang a song. He, even to his dying day, he had not forgotten how God had uniquely made him. And so I want to invite you to consider, how are you wired? What are you good at? What do you love and what are you so good at that you are practically made for that purpose? What is that for you? If you want to be great like David was great, You need to take that gift from God and use it for serving him. What is that for you? Don't get caught up in a bunch of stuff that other people tell you are important. Don't get caught up in that stuff. The world will tell you that this or that is essential for for life. But uh, they they tell you if if you aim for success, then you'll find satisfaction in life. Don't believe those pop culture myths. God has given you giftings, and he's telling you to use them for his purposes. I think it's important to know we don't always get to use our giftings, right? We don't always get, not all the time. Um, David still was a king. He had kingly roles and duties, and he did those. But don't forget how God uniquely made you. The way you are uniquely wired. Use those gifts. Greatness doesn't lie in all of those worldly values. Overthrowing kingdoms, conquering distant lands. David must have known that in a thousand years, nobody would care about the Philistines. Nobody would care about them. What truly matters is what impact you've had on the people around you. It's those sort of things that God is going to commemorate in heaven forever and ever. David's last words that we've looked at today reflect the character traits and the values that made his life great. Great. And as we've been going through this passage, um, I think you've probably realized, hopefully you've realized, that if we want to be great like David was great, we're going to have to change our definition of greatness. Greatness is not being the best running back in the NFL. Greatness is not being at the top of the corporate ladder. All those things, those great things that people aspire to, God has seen a lot of those. And you know what? They're just not really that impressive to him. Greatness really just belongs to God. And we are only great in as much as we are a loving friend and a loyal servant to him. Is this you? Are you like the light of the morning at sunrise? Like morning without clouds, like the gleaming of the sun on the new grass after rain? I really hope that this week you will take some of these principles, apply them to your life, and be truly great. I pray that you'd be that clear blue, blue sky sort of day. 
to the people who are in your life. Let's go ahead and stand.